being aware of the signs and symptoms of low electrolyte status. Lethargy, fatigue, brain fog are early stage pieces. When we start getting cramping, you're really far down the track. If we are deficient in sodium, it's virtually impossible for the kidneys to get out ahead of that. Sodium and potassium are really kind of the energy currency of life. Dietary change is so difficult anyway, but if you feel like absolute garbage also, you're really stacking the deck unfavorably. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Okay, friends, Rob Wolf is my favorite. So I am so thrilled to share today's episode with you guys. Like I say all throughout this episode, and I have said before, Rob Wolf is basically the reason I'm doing what I'm doing today. I read his book, The Paleo Solution, and here we are. I had Rob on the show before, and we dive deep into regenerative agriculture as well as some other health related things. But today's episode, we are focusing on electrolytes, such an important health topic that I think people have oftentimes a very basic understanding of. It was so exciting to dive deep, deep, deep into all of it with Rob. If after listening to the show, you would like to try the Element Electrolyte Supplements, Rob is being so kind and he is giving my audience free samples. Yes, completely free. You just go to drinklmnt.com forward slash Melanie Avalon and that will get you a free sampler pack. All you pay is shipping and if you don't like them, they will even reimburse you the shipping. It's that incredible. And I'm just going to take another moment of gratitude (laughs) recording this intro about how in awe I am of my life. I just, I can't believe that I get to interview people that I so, so look up to who are also just genuine human beings. Guys, I'm just so grateful and I hope you guys enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. The show notes for today's episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash electrolytes. Those show notes will have a full transcript, so definitely check that out. There will be two episode giveaways for this episode. One will be in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting plus Real Foods plus Life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something I love. And then there will be a second giveaway on my Instagram Again, check out the announcement post for this episode and comment something there to win. I have a very exciting announcement, friends. I have officially launched a TikTok channel. I've been on Instagram for a while, but it is time for TikTok. And with the channel, I'm going to be posting daily, very high quality, awesome biohacking content, tips and tricks, things from my life. And I really want to bring the glam to biohacking because I feel like biohacking can be very male-centric, or focused on a certain type of person, and I just want to break that stereotype and bring all the sparkles. So please join me there. My handle is Melanie Avalon Official. Please let me know what you'd like to see from me, what you think of the content. I do feel pretty shy about it, so please join me so that we can be friends and just go on the most epic biohacking adventure. Okay, friends, Spirulina update. It is still coming. I know it's been taking a while. It's just because I want to make the most ideal Spirulina tablets on the market. 
ones that are tested for purity and potency and to be free of all pesticides and just the highest quality. So we've got that spirulina source. It tastes awesome. The issue we're experiencing is that in order to make it into tablets, it requires another ingredient. If you're currently taking spirulina tablets and they say they are one ingredient, they are not one ingredient. There is something in there that is helping to keep that structure. So we're trying to figure out which route to go with this. It's really fun because I keep trying different samples. I think I know which one I like the most, but we'll see which one I end up picking. Either way, I really love the taste of our spirulina. It doesn't taste fishy or LGE, and I really experienced the benefits. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can get my other Avalon X supplements at avalonx.us. Friends, have you jumped on the serapeptase bandwagon yet? That's what I launched with, and to this day, it continues to be my most favorite supplement ever. It's a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm. When you take it in the fasted state, it actually breaks down non-living problematic proteins in your body so it can help address an array of issues. Like I said, it will clear your sinuses, calm inflammation, it may help reduce cholesterol. Studies have shown it can break down amyloid plaque, it can help alleviate pain, and so much more. I take it daily. It is one of the most important supplements in my arsenal. This is the new year. Start it off right. Get some serapeptase. You can get 10% off with the coupon code MELANIEAVALON, as well as a 20% off code when you text AVALONX to 877-861-8318. That's AVALONX to 877-861-8318. Those codes will also work with my fantastic partner, MD Logic Health. For that, go to melanieavalon.com slash mdlogic. And of course, all of my supplements I formulated to be the very best on the market. They're tested multiple times for heavy metals and mold. They're free of all common allergens as well as problematic fillers, which goes back to that whole spirulina formulation issue I was talking about. They come in glass bottles to help prevent leaching of plastics into ourselves and the environment. And we even use the minimal amount of stickiness required for the labels to help with our environmental impact. To get these fantastic products, go to avalonx.us and definitely get on my email list so that you don't miss the Spirulina launch special. For that, go to avalonx.us slash email list. Another resource for you guys if you struggle with food sensitivities like I do, you have got to get my app, Food Sense Guide. It's a comprehensive catalog of over 300 foods for 11 potentially problematic compounds. These include things you may be reacting to, like gluten, lectins, FODMAPs, histamine, oxalates, sulfites, thiols, whether or not something is a nightshade, and so much more. It even includes autoimmune paleo AIP status. You can learn about the compounds, create your own list to share and print, and finally take charge of your food sensitivities. It is a top Apple app, often in the top 10 for the Apple food and drinks charts. And friends, get it now because I'm going to be updating it to a subscription basis soon. So you definitely want to get grandfathered in for life at one super low price. With the subscriptions, by the way, I'm going to be implementing some pretty cool features. So I need to do subscriptions to help support that. So like I said, get it now before we change to subscriptions. You can get it at melanieavalon.com slash foodsenseguide. And one more thing before we jump in. Did you know there are over a thousand compounds found in conventional skincare and makeup in the U.S. that have been banned in Europe due to their toxicity? If you are using conventional skincare and makeup, you are directly putting into your bloodstream toxic compounds, including obesogens, which can literally cause your body to store and gain weight. So if your diet's not working, you might want to think about what's happening with your skincare and makeup, as well as carcinogens linked to cancer. I'm not making this up. And just endocrine disruptors in general, which 
mess with our hormones. Thankfully, there's an easy solution to this. There's a company called Beauty Counter, and they were founded on a mission to change this. Every single ingredient is extensively tested to be safe for your skin, so you can truly feel good about what you put on, and their products really work. I am obsessed with their overnight resurfacing peel, their vitamin C serum, they have shampoo and conditioner, skincare lines for every skin type, and incredible makeup. It's so amazing that Tina Fey actually wore all beauty counter makeup when she hosted the Golden Globes. So yes, it is high definition camera ready. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code cleanforall20 to get 20% off site-wide. You can get the latest updates from me, specials, sales, samples, and so much more on my email list. That's at melanieavalon.com slash cleanbeauty. And you can join me in my Facebook group, Clean Beauty and Safe Skincare with Melanie Avalon. People share product reviews and their experiences, and I do a giveaway every single week in that group as well. And lastly, if you're thinking of making clean beauty and safe skincare a part of your future, like I have, I definitely recommend becoming a Band of Beauty member. It's sort of like the Amazon Prime for clean beauty. You get 10 percent back in product credit, free shipping on qualifying orders, and a welcome gift that is worth way more than the price of the year-long membership. It is totally completely worth it. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. An important announcement, friends. My EMF blocking products are coming. Make sure you don't miss the launch special. For that, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list. EMFs are actually classified by the IARC as a group 2B, possibly carcinogenic to humans. These are such a problem. We are exposed to them through our Wi-Fi, our cell phones, our AirPods, And they are linked to so many health issues, including anxiety, migraines, headaches, even fertility issues. This is such a problem. Thankfully, you can address your EMF exposure. I'm going to help with that with my Avalon X EMF blocking product line. So again, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list to check that out. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful conversation with Rob Wolf. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the show. I am so incredibly excited about the conversation that I am about to have. This is a true statement when I say that I have had over 100 guests, all incredible guests on this show, but today's guest is my favorite guest out of all of them. I have done one episode before with this fabulous human being, but I will retell briefly my story about everything. So basically, the reason or a foundational reason that I became obsessed with the whole holistic health movement and the power of how our food affects our biology and our constitution was because I read a book called The Paleo Solution. I did not anticipate that that book would change my life, but it honestly really, really did. I don't even have it anymore because I lent it out and never got it back. But basically that book was written by the fabulous Rob Wolf. I became obsessed with his work. At the time it was called The Paleo Solution Podcast. I would listen to every single episode. Now it's called Healthy Rebellion. Radio for listeners who would like to listen now. After the Paleo Solution, Rob released Wired to Eat, which was all about how you react to different foods and different carb intakes, which is really eye-opening. I really, really recommend that book as well. And then most recently, he released Sacred Cow, which I find myself recommending that book all the time. If you want to really get a nuanced, comprehensive view of really the implications of animal husbandry and how animals affect the environment. It's 
mind-blowing. It's very eye-opening. The last episode we did, we really dived deep into it. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes. I was actually interviewing Gary Taub recently for his new book. And at the end, he was saying that basically his one concern with the the keto low-carb diet is the effect on the environment. And I was like, have you read, have you read Sacred Cow? So I basically just throw it at everybody. The answer to that is no, he hasn't. We've Gary, Gary and I have gone around and around on this topic. Yeah. Yeah. He, he was like, he was like, I read parts of it. I was like, well, read all of it, please. And report back. So, so but yeah, basically I just am forever grateful to your work, Rob. And the topic of today's show is electrolytes. And that is because Rob Wolf has an incredible product called Element. It's an electrolyte supplement. Well, I've been promoting it to my audience and I have been getting so much incredible feedback, especially from people who do low carb diets, keto diets, fasting, and the profound effect that taking electrolytes, specifically Element, has had on their health and their experience of their diet and issues they might have been having. On top of that, I've been getting so many questions about electrolytes, so I figured it was time to just have a conversation about all of this. So that was really, really long. Rob, thank you so much for being here. Huge honor to be here, and I am so honored and tickled that I've had some influence on your amazing impact in this health and wellness space. So I, I am just, it, it makes doing this very much worthwhile knowing that, that I, I've had some impact there. So thank you. Yes, majorly. I am just forever grateful. Listeners are probably ridiculously familiar with you, but for those who are not, you are a former research biochemist. Those books I mentioned, the first two are New York Times and Wall Street journal bestselling books. And you actually co-founded the first and fourth CrossFit affiliate gyms in the world, which is a, a really cool fun fact. But in any case, so to get into today's conversation, I have so, so many questions, but I guess a good place to start is I'm really, really curious. So you have Element, a product line now. What was the inciting incident for deciding to focus on electrolytes? Like was, did you have an epiphany one day? Was it a slow realization? Like what led to where you are now with promoting the importance of electrolytes? Oh man, that, it's a really good question. The Genesis story is interesting. And even though I, I'm, I'm pretty good at like the, the biochemistry, the metabolic pathways around ketogenic diets and, and just kind of, you know, human performance metabolism at large, but you, you never know everything. And I had been, so backing up a little bit more, 23 years ago, I was super sick from ulcerative colitis. I, I was down to, I'm, I'm about 165 pounds, reasonably good shape for a getting to be old dude, but I was down to 125 pounds from my ulcerative colitis because I just was absorbing nothing that I ate. And at that time I was eating a, a low fat vegan diet, which I, I think can work for some folks. It absolutely does not work for me. And I was pretty much at, at like desperation point and through kind of a long series of circumstances, this idea of a low carb paleo ancestral type diet got on my radar and I tried that. And for me, it was a lifesaver. And so we fast forward 23 years later, I, I do really well in, in most things, eating a lower carb diet, particularly my, my gut health and kind of blood sugar regulation. Like I've tried reintroducing carbs in a variety of ways and safe starch and all this stuff. And 
man, it just, it, for me, it really doesn't work all that well. And, and I know some people, the reintroduction of carbs goes great. For some people, it doesn't. But I've also always, you know, throughout most of my life, I've been interested in things like CrossFit and Muay Thai and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which are all very glycolytic, energy-demanding activities. And historically, a low-carb diet is, is really tough to pair with these super high-intensity glycolytic type, type sports or, or activities. And so I had struggled for years trying to figure out how do I eat in a way so that I feel good day to day, but then I, I, I have the energy to do the activities I want to do? And so I tried carb cycling and pre and post workout carbs and different things like that. And it, it worked okay, but none of it was really that great. And I, I started, continued poking around, looking around online for people that were low carb, but also doing Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. And I noticed that there were a number of women who were competing at a high level in jujitsu and we're also, you know, their, their profiles, you know, it would say like keto mama jujitsu one, one nine, you know, or whatever. And I'm like, Oh, okay. So I'd start looking at this stuff and they were all following this program called keto Games, And I started kind of poking around that scene. And the, the two guys that founded that Tyler Cartwright and Luis Villasenor struck me as really reasonable people, very, very smart, very dedicated to the folks that they they work with, they do these multiple times per year online boot camps where they, they focus on a appropriate protein, low carb, keto, you know, kind of ketogenic diet with smart strength training and a lot of community support and whatnot. And they just had stunning results, but, you know, with weight loss and, and with health improvements with people. So I, I kind of stalked these guys and started hanging out with them, managed to bamboozle them into, uh, being a speaker at one of their first in-person events. And I, I, I do what most people should do when they're, they're, you know, interacting with someone who's very good at something. I asked them to kind of assess what I'm up to and figure out if there was a way that I could, could, you know, better fuel my activities. And they looked at everything I was doing and they're like, you know, you look pretty good, but I, I suspect that you're not getting enough electrolytes, specifically sodium. And what I did was I ignored their advice at first. I'm like, oh, no, no, I, I salt my food. I'm not a, afraid of sodium. And, and they're very patient people. And so probably a good year went, went along and, and we started working together on a bunch of different projects. Like we worked on a, a health initiative for the Chickasaw Nation and a bunch of really cool things. But I kept whining and complaining about my jujitsu performance and not really recovering from activity and whatnot. And they would say, hey, I really think those electrolytes are important, you know. And, and finally, one day they were like, no, man, really, listen, do us this favor. Weigh and measure everything you're eating, including your electrolytes, like everything you're adding to your food when you, you know, when you add some salt, measure it, weigh it, add it into something like chronometer, which tells you the protein, carbs, fat, but also like the sodium, potassium, magnesium, calcium. It gives you a very comprehensive picture of what's going on. And let's see where your electrolytes are, especially sodium. And I was less than half of what they were recommending on sodium. And so I bumped that up. They had this, this thing that they called KetoAid, which was some regular table salt, some potassium chloride, which goes by the brand name No Salt, and some magnesium citrate, some lemon juice, some stevia, shake it up, drink it. And I felt amazing. Like it was literally like a light switch was flipped. And when you think about the fact that Every 
thought we have, every muscle impulse that we create is driven by sodium potassium pumps. And so if your electrolytes are off, it's going to dramatically affect the way that you look, feel, and perform. And just as an example, when somebody ends up in the emergency room, the very first things that doctors look at is their pH and their electrolytes. Because if your pH is off one way or the other, you can get very, very sick or you can die. If your electrolytes are off one way or the other, you can get very, very sick and you can die. And so like pH and electrolytes are arguably the most tightly regulated, you know, physiological parameters in our, our whole system. So once I figured this out, I was like, guys, electrolytes are super important. They're like, yeah, I know we've been telling people this for like 10 years, you know? And so this is where even if you individually are regarded as an expert on a topic, it's really good to shut up and just listen to other people around you because I could have saved myself another year of, of struggling. And what, what's interesting, I, I guess, in this, and I know I'm just kind of wandering all over the place, but if somebody is put on a medically supervised ketogenic diet, say like for epilepsy, their dietitian will make certain that the person gets at least five grams of sodium per day by, by hook or by crook, whether it's pickles or, or chicken bouillon cubes or, you know, whatever it is, because there's a, a really clear understanding that when people eat a low carb diet, their insulin levels decrease, which causes them to decrease a hormone called aldosterone and aldosterone causes us to retain sodium. So there's this, this phenomena called the naturesis of fasting. When people are in a low carb state or they're fasting, they lose water and sodium like crazy. And if you don't replenish that, People will be super lethargic, lightheaded. They, they have a high heart rate. Their sleep is disturbed. This can lead into thyroid issues and, and things that we like to call adrenal fatigue and whatnot. And so this was really kind of the genesis of this, this whole idea. But we didn't have this idea initially of making a product. What we did is we made a, a free downloadable guide or how to make this keto aid product. And within about six months, we had over a half million downloads of this thing. And people were just going crazy. They're like, the keto aid is amazing. Thank you so much. But when I travel, the three bags of white powder I travel with really concerns the TSA, you know? And, and so people started asking us, could, would you ever think about doing like a convenient product that I could take with me? And it really wasn't on our radar, but there was a, a massive amount of interest. And we were seeing all of these super common side effects or difficulties of, of doing dietary shift. And it doesn't have to be a low carb diet. Even if somebody just goes from eating a very poor diet to say like a Mediterranean type diet, they experience a lot of these same symptoms, the fatigue and lethargy and everything, because they're dropping their insulin levels. They've, they're going to have some shifting around of their electrolyte and sodium status and whatnot. And we just saw all of these people, you know, dietary change is so difficult anyway because of social issues and, you know, psychological issues and whatnot. But if you feel like absolute garbage also, and you have no energy and you just kind of hate your life, like you're really stacking the deck unfavorably for people. So we realized that if we could help people bridge that gap, you know, when they're, they're initiating dietary change, or if they've been in this scene a long time, but they're trying to exercise at a high level and, and whatnot, that they really need more electrolytes, in particular sodium. And the sodium piece is really something that's very different. Most electrolytes 
lead with potassium and we do see potassium as being very important. But what we, we really drive people towards is eating a minimally processed whole food diet. And generally they get most of the potassium they need in that scenario, but they, they get virtually none of the sodium. So that's why element is, is so sodium heavy relative to the other constituents. And then just, I will shut up here in a minute, but when we started putting this together, we weren't sure at all if this, this idea around element would go. And so the first several flavors we, we put out, like the citrus salt, like the, the raw unflavored and the lemon habanero, they were all formulated as drink mix bases also. So like if we failed as an electric light company, we were going to pivot and become like a drink mixer company. And fortunately, it's, it's gone well on, on both you know, kind of, kind of directions with that. But we didn't just sit down, you know, with this idea that we were going to spin up an electrolyte company. And it was really recognizing my own personal need, which Tyler and Luis had recognized this need in the folks that they had been working with for years. And then when we, we had this kind of premium offer or freemium offering where we gave this mix it yourself, you know, homebrew thing away. And we still do that. Like when people are well, I don't know if I want to spend the money on this. We're like, great, just just download the the free guide. Make sure you get your electrolytes on point. Eat some pickles, eat some olives. Like, just make sure you get enough sodium, and everything's going to be good. So that's kind of the genesis story, and it's been really cool because we didn't need to spin up any type of like magical stories. You know, like our our salt is this secret salt from like Pakistan, and there's only one source of it, and it's got this amazing mineral mix. Like, we didn't have to do any goofy marketing stuff like that. It's like, no, you probably need more sodium. And here's a million different ways that you could get it. But Element tastes really good and it's super convenient. So we'll send you a free one if you want to check it out. And kind of like any good drug dealer, first one's free and then people get hooked. And and then it's kind of off to the races from there. Oh my goodness. That is so incredible. And you touched on so many things. I have so many questions. So historically, as hunter-gatherers, when we were hunting and gathering, you know, no processed foods, nothing from today. What was the average sodium intake? That's a great question. And one part to this story is that the way that meat is processed in the Western world, animals are, are butchered and they're, they're bled as part of the, the process. And if you look at the sodium content of most mammals be while they're alive, and this is spread throughout their whole body, like the teeth, the hair, the nails, the the whole thing. But they contain about four, four and a half grams of sodium per kilogram of weight on on average of the animal. But when you look at the sodium content of just meat, it's about a gram and a half to two grams of sodium. And this is because when the animals are, are bled, and it's interesting, a lot of cultures, like I lived in Southeast Asia for a while, Central America for a while, and people will make things like blood pudding and blood cheese where they, they collect the blood when the, the animals are butchered and they eat that stuff. And the, the highest sodium concentrations in a mammal is in the extracellular fluid. But when an animal dies, the potassium, which is in higher concentrations inside the cell, tend to leak out and the sodium, which is in higher concentrations outside the cell tend to leak in and they equilibrate. And so I think that that's one place that 
hunter-gatherers likely obtained a significantly larger amount of sodium in their diet. And then the other part of this is that when we look at historical kind of analysis of the way that hunter-gatherers lived and, and also contemporarily living hunter-gatherers, they don't drink massive amounts of fluids. And I think that that's actually one of the the kind of wacky things like you sound like a crazy person to say, maybe we would be better off not drinking eight, eight ounce glasses of water per day. But just recently there were some pretty high level, you know, folks that have been walking that notion back because what they're finding is that people end up in this state called hyponatremia where their sodium levels are too low relative to the amount of water that they're consuming. And folks may be familiar with things like sorority or, or different like college hazing when people are joining a fraternity or sorority, people in military, boot camps, marathoners, triathletes. But if folks overconsume water, they can dilute their sodium to such a degree that they can become sick, possibly hospitalized or even die. And I think some of the problem that we experience today is just, you know, like I love drinking a cup of coffee in the morning, but a cup isn't actually like six or eight ounces. Like a cup is supposed to be, it's whatever container, you know, I can, I can fill full with, with fluid. And that is enough to start diluting your sodium levels. And then you start feeling kind of foggy headed and fatigued and whatnot. So I, I think in that ancestral environment, both animals and humans are very, very good at finding things like salt licks. They tended to gravitate towards more salt-rich foods. And then also they, they weren't consuming massive amounts of, of beverages throughout the day, which is ironic that, you know, we're kind of plugging that gap with a, a, you know, a beverage. But I think that that is a way that we can you know, kind of do some of the more socially accepted or, or habit based things of like having a drink to sip on throughout the day and whatnot. But we just make sure that there is actually some electrolytes in there and then we don't end up with the same problems. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference. May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando, and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and Dry Farm Wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. 
Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. I recently did two different episodes all just on water. It was because we were talking before this, I've been researching deuterium depletion. Something I learned in those episodes was that a large portion of our water is created internally. We don't drink it. And that really blew my mind. Like that was a huge, huge reframe for me. With everything that you just said with the hunter-gatherers, do you think that the amount of sodium they were consuming was similar to what we consume today? Or if you're eating processed foods, do you think that's more than what they would have been consuming? It, it, it would probably be significantly more than what any hunter-gatherer was consuming. I mean, sodium is the only kind of micronutrient that we have a, a taste for. Potassium chloride has a flavor and it tastes awful. Magnesium citrate has a flavor and it kind of tastes awful. But we have five you, you know, sweet, salty, sour, umami. One, one of them is, is salt. And so sodium is generally comparatively rare and hard to find in nature. And so it, it is interesting that, that most organisms have a taste and a drive for salt. And also salt-containing substances usually have some other nutrients that go with them and whatnot. But uh, it, usually when, when we look at the reconstructed diets of hunter-gatherers, it was it was definitely not that like five grams of of sodium per day level that that we've been recommending within say like this kind of low carb world, but it also looks like that doesn't make as big a a point so long as we get adequate potassium and the other kind of profile of, of minerals is pretty good. Do individual electrolytes affect individual processes, or is it more about the overall balance of all of them? On a granule level, what do electrolytes actually do? I know you mentioned like the potassium pump and things like that, but are they a nutrient or are they a signaling molecule? Like what are they literally doing? I, I guess both in, in some ways. So I'm just going to focus on the, the metal ions in this. So all of the electrolytes that we would consider would be sodium, potassium, magnesium, calcium, chloride, bicarbonate, and then maybe phosphorus, phosphate, but I, I'm not really going to look at the, the anions, the, the chloride and all, all that type of stuff, really going to focus on the metal ions. But so like calcium is a critical piece of muscle contraction. It, it plays a, a role in like the actin myosin cross-linking and when, when those actin myosin heads interact and, and kind of you know, do that sliding filament thing when we, when we contract muscles. Calcium is critical in the clotting cascade. So like if we get a, a cut or a thrombic event, calcium is, is critical in, in that process. Magnesium is, is critical in ATP production. It helps to kind of orient the structure of ATP in such a way that the, the enzymes properly work in both building and degrading ATP. And so those are important electrolytes, but they, they play very, in my mind, kind of secondary roles relative to sodium and potassium. And sodium and potassium are, are really kind of the energy currency of life. Like if people remember college, high school biology, TCA cycle, Krebs cycle, the electron transport chain, all that, that type of stuff, all of that is being driven by sodium potassium pumps. So our body will 
concentrate sodium in higher amounts outside the cell, potassium in higher amounts inside the cell. And that gradient helps to then drive the electron transport gradient, the, the hydrogen ion gradient, which uh, occurs in the mitochondria. And so the, the sodium-potassium pump really is the, the big, big deal in the story. And I mean, all these things are important. Magnesium's important. Calcium's important. Modern folks who eat a processed diet tend to overconsume sodium relative to these other constituents. And that's part of why sodium's had kind of a bad rap. And we can kind of, kind of dig into that a, a little bit later. But it, it's worth noting, though, that if we have adequate sodium, in general, people do well sorting everything else out. If, if the individual is a diabetic, hypertensive, they have high blood pressure, then we, we need to do some things like just loading them with more sodium is not really going to help them all that much. But interestingly, allowing them to continue eating a poor diet and restricting their sodium also doesn't really help them all that much. I, ironically, like we need to to really modify their diet and lifestyle in a way that improves insulin sensitivity and they go through some of that naturesis of fasting and get to a normal normal spot with their their blood pressure and their electrolyte status but i would make the case that sodium is really kind of the linchpin in this whole story because if we get a little bit too much sodium within about 15 or 20 minutes our kidneys have filtered it and sorted that out but if we are deficient in sodium it's virtually impossible for the kidneys to get out ahead of that. And they will begin to shed potassium and magnesium. Then it will stimulate hormonal signaling where we pull sodium out of the bone. But when we pull the sodium out of the bone to buffer our extracellular fluids, we also pull calcium out of the bone. So this is thought to be one of the, the drivers of osteoporosis, osteopenia, is low sodium intake, which then drives the tendency to remove both sodium and calcium out of the bone. So it's a really dynamic process, and it, it's maybe self-serving because we, we put together element to be very sodium forward, but we didn't do that. It, it's kind of funny, folks on the interwebs will say, oh, I, I like the product, but you really got the formulation wrong. And I'm, I'm like, well, or we really understand the science better than everybody else in the scene. And it, it, it's worth mentioning, just throwing it out, out there, we had a friend of ours go to Florida State University where, where Gatorade was developed ages ago. And the, they have like a Gatorade Hall of Fame and they have some of the original packages of Gatorade. And used to, there was a time when Gatorade provided a gram of sodium per serving. And then over the course of time, that sodium has gotten dialed down and the sugar has gotten dialed up because of this kind of misunderstanding about the, the importance of, of sodium and really the hazards of, of adding sugar to our system. Actually, that's a, um, I sound super professional using Wikipedia, but one of the sentences on Wikipedia talks about the importance of sugar in electrolyte drinks for properly supporting sodium uptake. Is that true? It's true in certain circumstances. So this comes from something called oral rehydration therapy. And what they found, you know, people in developing countries, if they get a dysentery or some of these really terrible gut-borne pathogens, they can get diarrhea to such a degree that they, they can die quite easily from dehydration and from electrolyte imbalance. If somebody's throwing up a lot, they can, they can die from alkalosis because they actually lose a bunch of uh, stomach acid. So th those things are really important. 
And in that oral rehydration therapy scenario, sugar does facilitate the, the uptake of sodium. But what's missed in that story is that there are lots of other co-transporters that also allow the uptake of sodium. Amino acids facilitate the uptake of sodium. Butyrate or beta-hydroxybutyrate. So butyrate, if you're eating a high-fiber diet, you're going to make short-chain fats from that, and that facilitates the uptake of sodium. If you're on a ketogenic diet, and this is one of the reasons why I, I know years ago, there were folks that were really concerned about the lack of fiber and that we would kill you know, the mucus layer in the, in the gut because we weren't feeding it. But what we find is if we hit a level, a, a decent level of ketosis, the beta-hydroxybutyrate diffuses into the gut and actually feeds the, the gut micro, microbiota and some of the intestinal lining cells. That also facilitates the uptake. And, and this is something that gets missed a ton in this. Under fasting conditions, like medically supervised fasts, the one thing that folks are, are you know, given to help them navigate this whole process is an electrolyte beverage that is heavy in sodium. But these folks are consuming nothing. And so how do they absorb this? And the body has another backup mechanism. So one, a person in fasting would, in theory, be in a state of ketosis. So that beta-hydroxybutyrate could be facilitating the, the uptake of the sodium. But also, we can bring minerals into the body via active transport. It costs us a little bit of energy, but we can absolutely do that. So it's true that under, you know, kind of life or death circumstances, Putting a little bit of glucose in, in the mix can definitely enhance the uptake of electrolytes, but it, it's portrayed as if it's impossible to, you know, uptake electrolytes unless you have sugar with it. And that is absolutely patently false. And what we've done with our, our folks that we work with, it also begs the question, okay, if you're going to put sugar in there, how much? Like, are you a six foot four male? Are you a five foot two female? Are you super active? You know, there's all these different considerations there. So what we do is just educate people about if you are working out at a, a very high motor, you know, output and you feel like you would benefit from some additional glucose, then here's how we would kind of dose that alongside your, your electrolytes. But even in that case, I recommend that people get something like the, the diabetic glucose tabs because I, I like to handle those as completely separate entities. Like you've got the electrolyte piece and then you've got the, the carbohydrate or the glucose piece. And so when I go to jujitsu, if it's all a bunch of old broken down has-beens like me, I will just sip on some electrolytes while I'm doing my, my drilling and open mat. And it, it's not really that big of a deal. If it's a bunch of, you know, 22 year old division two wrestlers that are now you know, doing jujitsu, then I'll, I'll take 15, 20 grams of, of glucose because I would like that extra little pop while I'm, while I'm training. So uh, again, I know I'm bouncing all over the place with this stuff, but the oral rehydration therapy is a real thing. There's absolutely super important applications for it. And it is completely false that that is the one and only way that, that one can bring sodium or electrolytes into their system. I'm getting hit with memories. I remember when I first went on a low carb diet and I was like super intense about it and very legalistic in my, in my approach. And I had a blood test and I fainted, which was really awful. But I remember I woke up and they were like trying to give me like some electrolyte sweetened thing. And I was like, I can't have sugar. <laughs> so I refused it. Good times. But you touched on so many things. 
So like you were talking about how if the body needs sodium, if it can't get sodium, it's forced to excrete all of these other really important electrolytes. Like I can't really think of any other nutrient where if you don't get enough of it, your body gets rid of other nutrients to balance. I mean, is that the situation that's happening? Yeah, but I mean, it, it, it's a little bit like getting inadequate dietary protein. You know, if if somebody gets is under eating protein, and there are a lot of people both in the vegan world and in the the really extreme keto world that are terrified of protein. They're terrified of mTOR and growth factors, and they're going to get cancer and all this stuff. And what ends up happening? These people lose lean body mass. They lose bone density because a significant proportion of your bones are actually made of muscle. And then organs like your heart and your liver and your brain end up shrinking because your body is catabolizing the protein in, in your, your person. Now, some autophagy and some cellular turnover is beneficial for sure. Before COVID waylaid everybody, I had a talk that I was going to do called Longevity, Are We Trying Too Hard? And I'm really on the very conservative and skeptical side of the, the fasting camp. I, I think people do too much of it. I think they, they go way overboard. They should be, fo instead of asking, should I do another 72 hour fast this month? I would ask them, have you done four days of strength training every week for the last, you know, six months? Like, I think that there's a lot more upside and benefit to be had there, but you know, we do store a lot of different nutrients, protein, electrolytes, you know, both in the, the bone and in the soft tissue. And when we are, are depleted in that, if we're under eating those things, then we will strip those out of the body. You're really one of the only people that I've personally heard talk about with overfasting things like stem cell depletion. I haven't really heard anybody else say that. And, and I've heard you say it, you know, multiple times on different podcasts. And I've thought about a lot. And I recently interviewed Walter Longo and I asked him, I was like, is, like, is that a possibility? And he was like, yeah. <laughs> I was like, okay. I don't know. something I think a lot of people aren't really talking about. Like we're all about using the stem cells and upgrading the stem cells, but you know, there might be a point where that could be too much. What people forget is we only have so many stem cells and this is a whole Potentially interesting thing. So bo both of our girls were, were home births and there's this really potent desire to like get the placenta out and disengage it as quickly as possible. But that placenta will continue pumping stem cells into the baby for quite a long time. And that stem cell pool is everything that you're going to have for your whole life. You know, and all these folks that are saying, I'm going to live to 150 and everything. Okay, well, you will maybe based off of how many stem cells you have. But over the past 30, 40 years, the tendency has been the baby comes out, they clamp the placenta immediately because there's this super misguided notion that the placenta is going to overfill the baby with fluids and there's going to be some sort of like hemodynamic catastrophe because evolution is that dumb. You know, it's like, I, I, it, this is one of these things that just makes me absolutely crazy. But so we, we have this pool of stem cells that need to last our whole life. And then we have cells that go through growth phases and then different elements of the senescence phase. That senescence can head into autoimmunity, into inf pro-inflammatory state, and also into cancer. So you don't want an overabundance of those. But something that folks miss is that 
exercise causes a conversion of senescent cells into either apoptosis, getting rid of them, or back into a pre-senescent state. So it kind of presses a, a reset button on that. But all of our, our cells have a certain number of replications. It's called the Hayflick limit. And it, it, it may be a little bit different in a full living organism than it is in a tissue culture. But this guy, Hayflick, the, the noticed that after cells had divided about 50 times, they were done. Their telomeres were gone and they, they went through a very rapid senescence process and they died. And one of the hallmarks of when people get pretty old and then like everything just fails all at once is that they have depleted their stem cell pools. But I, I did my first article on fasting in 2005. And then by 2006, I deeply regretted releasing it because it went out to mainly a group of CrossFitters who were intermittent fasting 22 hours a day, eating five grams of carbs a month, doing six workouts a week. They would recover with hot yoga on the weekends and their hair was falling out. They had no libido. They had retrograde performance. And I'm like, this is a stressor. And if you're a type B mellow desk jockey who does computer programming all day, doing a little bit of intermittent fasting is probably great. If you're a hard charging athlete who's doing three or four times the work output that a hunter gatherer would do, you don't need more stress. And, and this is where I think folks kind of in this, you know, biohacking community or, or whatever, they, they lose sight that all of these things are a tool and all of them have a dose response curve. And virtually everybody thinks that more is better. And it's funny because I was really banging on Peter Atia for a long time. I'm like, dude, I think you're doing way too much of this stuff. And more recently, he has really walked back the, uh, the volume and the intensity that he's doing on his fasting. And if we overlay also, I know we've gotten out in the weeds away from electrolytes. You look at what Brett Weinstein's work that he did back in 2004. So all of this research looking at fasting and calorie restriction and increased health span is mainly in lab animals. And it's mainly in lab animals that have been bred to what, what bread is found, particularly in the rodents, not so much the, the same application to the primates, but in these, these mice and rats, they've been bred in a way that they have exceptionally long telomeres. And this has been dangerous for drug discovery because it makes these animals super human, if you, if you want to put that, with regards to toxicity. They can deal with massively toxic environments because they've got a huge uh, amount of telomeres and stem cells that they can deal with things in an acute fashion. But these animals also suffer from massive amounts of cardiovascular disease and cancer later in life because of the uh, evolutionary trade-off with these elongated telomeres. So with the little bit of study that has been done in looking at animals fed a species-appropriate diet, they get absolutely no benefit from calorie restriction. You only see calorie restriction when animals are fed a crappy lab chow diet, which is like the penultimate definition of processed food. Like they're feeding these, these monkeys and, and mice a chow that is basically processed grains with vegetable oils and sugar because the researchers want to know exactly what they're eating, which is laudable on the one hand, but is dumb on the other because there's not many things that are uncontroversial out in the world, but 
you know, the notion that highly processed foods are really easy to overeat and can be problematic for health is one of the few things that won't start a fistfight in, you know, the, the interwebs. And, the, you know, the case that I've made and that other people have made is that all of the fasting research that we've seen, all of the calorie restriction research that we've seen may be doing nothing other than illustrating that eating less of crap food is better than more of crap food. And that may be the, the alpha, the omega, the whole thing on it. And then when we overlay that with this idea that overly aggressive fasting moves senescent cells through the life cycle more rapidly, which then brings up the stem cells, that sounds like a good idea. But what people don't realize is that we have a whole spectrum of cells that need to function at any given moment. Some of our immune response to cancer involves cells that are partway through the senescent cycle. You don't activate mTOR complex one without cells that are, are in a mode of being partially down that, that senescence route. And so then we don't develop the, the natural immunity against cancer or the, the normal apoptotic processes. So then you increase the likelihood of cancer in, in many regards if we are overly aggressive on that, that stem cell depletion and, and just trying to expunge ourselves of every single senescent or quasi-senescent cell. So I'm, I'm in this mode where I think get sun on your skin, drink some coffee, lift some weights three or four days a week, do cognitively engaging activity. And, and sure, maybe, maybe once a quarter, once a month, do, do a one day, two day fast. Great. But I, I just, I, I, I am really, really suspicious of any type of additional benefit or upside. And in particular, when I see folks that just look frail and haggard and that like, if they were driving on an icy road and their, their car went off the road and they would be incapable of saving their own life, because they're fasting themselves so hard that they've, they, they, they are literally a non-resilient, you know, organism, then that seems ridiculous to me. And I'm totally in the minority on that. <laughs> Hi, friends. I am so excited to tell you about something that I am obsessed with that can revolutionize your health, help with stress levels, support longevity, and really help you when you go out and are having a bit of wine or drinks or all the things. And I'm going to tell you how to get $100 off. So I've been talking about the role of NAD in our health for so long. NAD stands for nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide. It is a coenzyme that is involved in so many processes in our body, including energy production and DNA repair. And it is depleted by things like stress, aging, lack of sleep, alcohol, and of course, too much partying. In fact, a lot of researchers believe that declining NAD levels is one of the key factors in aging. That's why I have been really interested in boosting and supporting NAD levels, and I have tried all the things. You can take precursors to NAD called NR and NMN. I still take NMN. However, I am much more alert by directly giving your body NAD, and historically, the most common way to do that that is accessible to people was through NAD IVs and NAD shots. I actually never did an NAD IV for a few reasons. One, they are extraordinarily expensive. Two, I've been doing the shots, which I liked because they were easy to do. That said, they always made me feel a little bit unwell right afterwards. And I've heard
heard that the IV makes a lot of people feel unwell. So if the shots were making me feel unwell and that was going into the muscle first as like a barrier, I can't even imagine what putting it straight into my bloodstream would have done. Plus with the IVs, you have to sit there for potentially hours. So basically IVs were a no-go for me. So like I said, I was doing the shots, but I was like, I wish there was an easier way to do this. Then a company called Ion Layer reached out to me. Oh my goodness, friends. I am so obsessed. So they make transdermal NAD patches and they have studies showing that these patches actually boost your NAD levels. And what's so amazing is you put on a patch. It's super easy to put on. I have a video on my Instagram about how you do it. You basically get this patch thing with like a negative side and a positive side. You put saline on one side, you mix up the NAD with some sterile water and the NAD that they give you on the other side. Then you stick it to your arm or wherever you want to put it. You put a super cool black patch over it, kind of like how you put the patches over CGMs. And then what's amazing is there are no side effects. You don't feel unwell from it and it lasts for 14 hours. And it's so easy. You can do it at home and then you can really decide when you want to do it. So with the shots, I was doing them once a week and I was trying to do them before going out with this patch. Now I put on the patch before going out and it makes me feel so good. It really helps the next day from any alcohol recovery that you may need. And they look pretty awesome with my outfits. Not going to lie. I am obsessed with these patches. I just want everybody to know about them and they are so much more affordable than the shots or the IVs. If you want to boost your NAD levels, support anti-aging, help with your stress, help with lack of sleep, and or optimize your partying. You need these patches, friends. And I'm so excited because working with the company has been amazing and they are giving you guys $100 off, which is incredible. So to get that discount, just go to melanieavalon.com slash ion layer. That's I-O-N-L-A-Y-E-R and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get $100 off your first order. I cannot recommend these enough. I'm going to use them for the unforeseeable future, probably for the rest of my life. It's literally just become part of my arsenal now. Like when I'm getting ready to go out, usually once a week, put on my NAD patch. And even if I don't go out that week, I still like to do one once weekly. Oh, P.S. They're also amazing for traveling. You guys know I'm not a big traveler. I've been doing more traveling recently and I wear these on the plane there and back. Game changer. Although it's really fun at TSA, especially because I already opt out and don't go through the scanner thing. So they already are suspicious. And then they're like, what's that on your arm? And I'm like, it's NAD. And then they're like, what's that? And then I'm like, it's a coenzyme in your body that's involved in a lot of metabolic processes and energy production and DNA repair. And then they just look at me really weird, but it's fine. It's totally fine. So again, that's melanieavalon.com slash ion layer to get $100 off your ion layer kit. It comes with six patches, totally the way to go for boosting NAD levels. And I cannot recommend it enough. melanieavalon.com slash ion layer with the coupon code melanieavalon for $100 off. I think it's really, really valid to think about. I actually just learned the other day that stem cells generate their energy through glycolysis. Do you think that has any implications for people on long-term ketogenic diets? It could, you know, like red blood cells are, are gly- exclusively glycolytic in, in most mammals. And so this is where I think, I think as we've motored along, we have generally found that adequate protein with some degree of carbohydrate restriction seems to be really good. Like the Bernstein diabetes solution for type one diabetes works miracles for people. But what they're doing is they're consuming enough protein so that the liver can make adequate glucose via gluconeogenesis and release that, but it releases it in a very steady time index fashion. It's very, very different than consuming any 
any type of a, a dense carbohydrate source. And we just seem to see fewer of the really deleterious side effects of people trying to be in this like mega deep ketosis where like they have unmeasurable insulin levels and, and whatnot. Like protein does release some insulin. If you're insulin resistant, maybe we want to find a way to reduce calorie load and carbohydrate load so that we can, you know, restore good insulin sensitivity. But being afraid of protein because of the potential of gluconeogenesis and insulin release, I think ends up being very counterproductive in the long run. And I, I, I wouldn't be, you know, wouldn't it be a bastard if we're killing some of our stem cells because we're starving them of adequate glucose? And then when we get to be 80 years old and we really wished we had those to help repair like an aortic arch weakness in our cardiovascular system or something, it's like, oh, sorry, we're all out of those. You know, we're all out of stem cells that could create some more neurons in your brain or some more gut cells to help your, your, your gut lining heal or something like that. So th this is where I, I, you know, some people for a variety of medical reasons, or like if they're doing adjunctive cancer therapy or whatnot, the really, really deep state of ketosis is something that I, I think they need and they want to pursue. But then for the vast majority of people, if just general body composition and health is kind of the goal, I think that we, we make sure that we get adequate protein. We figure out if we run better on carbs or fat, and we find a way that we can spontaneously maintain our appropriate calorie intake. And that's really where the, the money is. And once people hit that point, I'm so suspicious of the benefits of much in the way of fasting beyond that, like a lot of zone two cardio, a lot of strength training, a lot of novel cognitive activities, like learning to dance or a language or music, like those things, we just have such great research. And it and also it enriches your life today. That's a, that's a, another thing that I'm kind of like, well, it benefits you now and it will probably benefit you later. Whereas this fasting stuff, like, I don't know if somebody gets in a mode where they're like, well, I just feel really good. It's good for my productivity to skip breakfast. And then I do a, a lunch and a dinner. That's great. That, you know, I'm, I have no gripes around that. But when people are compressing their feeding window to like one hour a day, and they're trying to eat 3000 calories in a single meal, and they've got gut issues from that and their sleep is all disordered, then I, I think we're really driving the boat in a, a completely counterproductive position or, or direction, you know, if, if the primary goal was supposed to be health. I'm just mentally preparing myself for all the, um, <laughs> the, the feedback and the questions I'm going to get from listeners. Yeah. I've found that I've settled into, it is one meal a day, but it's like five hours probably of eating. And I just really, I don't know. I really benefit from the mental part of fasting during the day and the productivity. And then just having a long, luxurious evening seems to work with my sleep. So it's, it's really working for me, but I do, I do wonder about that, that stem cell stuff. And you know, that, that piece doesn't sound so crazy and over the top to me. And honestly, that does better emulate what, what would generally be accepted as kind of like an ancestral eating pattern. Like hunter gatherers tended to hunt and gather throughout the day. Then they kind of all got back together in the late afternoon and evening and they ate the bulk of what they hunted and gathered. And it tended to extend out over a, a rather long period of time. So I, th that doesn't weird me out. And also, you know, if your hair's not falling out, if you're not amenorrheic, if you're not cold, if your sleep's not disturbed, if your HRV score is good, 
it's like, okay, we're, we're good, but people will just go crazy. And they're like, well, I'm eating in five hours. What if I do it in three, you know? And it's just this, this brinkmanship where they, they keep making it tighter and tighter and tighter. Yeah. Yeah. Especially being the host of the intermittent fasting podcast. I think the biggest disservice that has come out of the intermittent fasting movement is that people think, they think it's the one doll, like the be all end all solution. So that because you're fasting, what you eat no longer like magically doesn't matter anymore. It like kills me. And then the second thing they think more fasting is always better. So like you just said, but you know, if I can do five hours, I can do three hours. And if I can do one meal a day, I can fast for three days or four days. And I just, I, I don't know. I, I try to dismantle that as often as I can. And, and again, I always have the caveat. If it seems to be working for people, if they look, feel, and perform the way that they want, if they, you know, if it's it's working for their lifestyle. Like if I had my my ideal situation, I would do get up, do a really big breakfast, do jujitsu or some type of strength training around noon. And then I would do my final meal around like two or three. And depending on the volume and the intensity of my activity, then I'd be done. But I have seven and nine-year-old daughters and family time eating is kind of important. And so I do a big breakfast. My lunch is dependent on if I did a lot of jujitsu that day, then it's, it's another big lunch. If it, it was, if I was writing all day or podcasting, you know, kind of like this, then it's a very modest lunch. And then I just have a token dinner in the evening because we sit down and hang out and talk about the day and all that type of stuff. So I, you know, even though I'm saying all this stuff, I would ideally have a bit more of a, a, constrained eating window, but just like my family obligations and social obligations, it makes it a little bit easier to do this, but I'm really, really flexible with it. Like if we get super busy, the cool thing about fasting and ketosis and all this stuff, in my opinion, is that when people become metabolically flexible, if you're traveling one day and all of your food options suck, you're like, fine, I just won't eat. I'll eat tomorrow. You know, it's like, I'm not going to get wrote, you know, if you're gluten intolerant, then you're like, I'm not going to eat at this sketchy restaurant. I'll just motor through and I'll, I'll get a ton of work done and I'll make it up on the back end. That's awesome. Like I, I think that the li- liberation that can be had from a metabolically flexible physiology just can't, you, you can't make enough about that. But again, I just think that people go crazy on it and institute this kind of brinkmanship where they're like, well, some was good. So more has got to be better. And, and that's when I start seeing people have some real problems. Yeah. I think listeners are always pretty shocked to learn. Like the longest I fasted is like 48 hours. And I was like, I'm not doing this again. <laughs> um, I tend to eat every single day and I tend to do it in that, that longer window. I wanted to touch on one thing. I, I just didn't want to let it slip away. The rat thing you were talking about with the telomeres, was that the thing I was listening to some interview? <sighs> I feel like it was Peter Atia. It might've been Brett Weinstein, but whoever it was, was talking about how basically almost all the studies we've done on rats have been not incorrect, but misleading because of the rat species that was used. Super incorrect. Like it, it re, it really incorrect because if this hypothesis around their telomere length is accurate, then what, it, 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 it's kind of been borne out because we, we use these animal models as a first line of assessing safety. And then, you know, things like, like Vioxx and, and stuff like that. Then we release it out to the populace. And what we find is in the, the short term, typically people are okay, but when it goes on for two years, three years, five years, then we start seeing these, these potentially really negative 
downstream effects. And so Brett's whole case here is that the, 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 the foundational toxicological screening that they do at the beginning of the drug discovery process is flawed. And then it flaws everything else as a consequence. And he released this back in 2003, I want to say, and it has been very unpopular within the, the drug industry circles. And it, this could be something as simple as they need to breed the animals in a different circumstance and or they need to bring in some wild type animals. Like there, there could be some ways to modify this so that we, we could do these things differently, but there's absolutely no, no will to, to do that because it, it will absolutely limit the number of, of new drugs that are kind of brought online. But I have a little prickliness around that too, because virtually all of the new drugs that are brought online are addressing issues that are completely solvable via diet and lifestyle. So, it, you know, it, it, this isn't addressing like a brand new cancer therapeutic that, that's going to save lots and lots of people with these rare types of cancers or anything. It's, it's another anti-inflammatory drug. It's another heart drug, you know, stuff like that. Didn't he like try to tell people about this and was basically just ignored? If they accepted this, it would, I mean, it would invalidate. Yeah, I, I think he spoke before Congress about how important this was. And it, it just went nowhere. It, it, it be, as his podcast has grown, it, 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 this thing has gotten a, a new life and has some more legs. But yeah, it's a, it's, a really, it's a really interesting piece to this whole story for sure. Well, since we're talking about controversy and the, um, the findings and the data, coming back to electrolytes, when I was sitting down to research all of this, I was just thinking about how, honestly, the whole salt debate is something that I find so confusing because on the one hand, there's all these people saying that, you know, low sodium diets have beneficial effects, especially on things like blood pressure. But then there's a whole scrutiny of the data saying that it's misleading or it's like U-shaped or it's J-shaped. But then there's scrutiny of that and saying that that is actually, there's a lot of debate out there. <laughs> so um, this controversy surrounding sodium and particularly blood pressure, but other conditions as well. What are your thoughts? It's Interesting. I mean, at, at a very superficial level, and this is, you, you know, years ago when we talked about like the amount of fat that was consumed, you know, we were told that, that fat is this major enemy for cardiovascular disease and cancer and all these different things. And then some stuff popped up like the French paradox and the Spanish paradox. And, and you know, well, they eat more fat than Americans do, but they have, you know, a few fewer problems and it just kind of goes on and on. One, I think that nutrition research is just really it's difficult to do. It's usually not done that well. It's super complex. But it, some animal studies that looked at boluses of sodium being given, again, to, to animals raise blood pressure. So that was kind of this, this thing. And we're like, huh, okay. And we know for sure that elevated blood pressure is a major cardiovascular risk factor. It, it is, depending on where you are in this whole story of cardiovascular disease progression, there are some people that believe that the concentration of cholesterol, specifically lipoproteins, LDL lipoprotein, that is the driver of cardiovascular disease. Other people make the case that that is a piece of it, but you need some sort of vascular damage to occur, like smoking or oxidized fats or oxidized cholesterol or high blood pressure. When our blood pressure is very high, we get what's called non-laminar flow. And so the movement of, of blood through our, our vascular system Laminar flow is very, very smooth and there's not bumps and kind of bubbles through it, but non-laminar flow creates this, this turbulence that can damage the, the endothelium of the, 
our, our arteries and then and then the the cholesterol and the lipoproteins deposit there to begin the, the rebuilding process. It's actually part of the recovery process. But if that keeps happening, then you can end up with an atherogenic fatty streak. And I'm not entirely sure where I am on the, is it all lipoproteins? Is it vascular endothelial damage? Like I'm, I'm the more I look into this, the more I'm, I'm honestly confused. But when we look at the the research on just what are people consuming with regards to sodium and cardiovascular disease rates, a really simple one. And this is something that when, when the U.S. government started making low sodium recommendations back in the late, late 70s, early 80s, some people pointed out that the Japanese consume three to five times more sodium than we do, but yet had a fraction of the cardiovascular disease. So it can't just be the sodium. And then they, they did pretty darn good studies, randomized, you know, controlled trials where they would get folks eating low sodium diets and high sodium diets. And what was, what's interesting in those scenarios is that the low sodium diets decrease blood pressure a little bit, but it's really not that much. But what really seems to knock blood pressure down is finding a calorie load and a glycemic load that is low enough that people reverse insulin resistance. And then when they become insulin sensitive, they retain the proper amount of sodium in, instead of retaining too much. So it, it is a complex topic, but I mean, the, the research on both high and low sodium diets have been pretty, I want to say pretty clear, but to your point, you'll have people that get in and, and pick it apart. And, and one of the things that I've been recommending that people do is they just get like a $10, $15 home blood pressure cuff and you just experiment a little bit. You know, you let's say you're eating a low carb diet, but you've had some lethargy and fatigue, and maybe you go, you're lightheaded going from seated to standing, which is classic kind of symptoms of, of hyponatremia of low sodium. Let's see what your blood pressure is there. Now let's have you eat some olives and some salami and maybe use something like element and let's get your daily sodium intake spread out throughout the day from both food and supplement sources. Let's get it at least five grams per day and let's see what that does to your blood pressure. And what, what we find is, you know, people are not like in mass developing hypertension. What we find is they, in some cases, people who had hypertension previously, when they consume the appropriate amount of sodium, their blood pressure actually goes down. Doesn't do this for everybody, but there, there is literature that suggests that uh, inadequate sodium causes stress. And so we get an upregulation of both adrenaline, ep epinephrine, and cortisol because both of those are other hormones that cause a retention of sodium. But those things are more stress <laughs> hormone related and they have all these other kind of deleterious effects. So it, it is a, a big gnarly not to, you know, it reminds me of when my daughters refuse to brush their hair for a couple of days and you've got this horrible tangled knot. And I'm like, I'm going to have to shave your head <laughs> to fix it. You know, this, this problem, these nutrition problems strike me as being similarly messy and tangled, but we do have some pretty good research to lean on. And also that, that kind of N equals one experimentation. Like if you're concerned one way or the other, then, you know, for a 10 or $15 investment in tracking your blood pressure, then you, you can figure out where you are in that story. So the, the tendency to having hypertension or blood pressure issues, is that something that would most likely only manifest if you are eating a diet that would create that, or if you are genetically predisposed to that, does it not so much matter? Like, could you be following on an appropriate diet and still have blood pressure issues? 
little bit of both. There's definitely a genetic component. There's definitely that epigenetic component of, of diet, but by and large, we tend to see hypertension track really closely with insulin resistance. And when we fix that insulin resistance, then we tend to see that resolve. And there's maybe 1% of the population or what we would call a sodium sensitive hyper responder. Like they get a really massive transient increase in blood pressure when they, they like they eat a, a salty soup or something like they get a real, they can feel it. They can feel their, their blood pressure has gone up. Not all of these people respond favorably to reduced glycemic load, but most of them do. And what's interesting about those other folks is that if they're eating a lower glycemic load diet, they're not experiencing any of the symptoms that you would need more sodium for anyway. They're not experiencing lethargy, fatigue, elevated heart rate. Like their body is at a homeostatic level that's fine for their, their situation. Hi friends. So I'm sort of haunted by clothes. If you follow me on Instagram, you probably know that I love wearing all the new clothes all the time. And I know that that is not really sustainable and not good for the planet. That's why I am thrilled that there is now a way to get all of the clothes with none of the waste. And I'm going to tell you how you can get unlimited clothes with no waste for a month for free. That's right, I now have a website for both myself and you guys where you can get free unlimited clothes with free shipping, free exchanges, nonstop from all of the hottest brands, and it is so incredibly easy. It's called MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. We have so many incredible brands, including my favorites like BCBG, Calvin Klein, and so many more. Think like a hundred brands. There are so many options. And the way it works is when you get a subscription, you search through the clothes, pick what you want. They send it to you with fast, easy shipping. You wear it as long as you want. And then when you're ready for more clothes, you just drop it off in their prepackaged envelope and get your next round. It is so incredibly cool. They have multiple plans. The starter plan gives you two pieces at a time. Friends, I actually have a little secret hacked. Don't tell them that I told you this. When you get your two pieces, you can actually immediately go into your account, click return, and they'll go ahead and send you the next two pieces. So technically you can have four pieces at a time. You also have a cool virtual closet that you can keep stocked with everything you eventually want to order. So you never miss out. And if you really like something and want to keep it, you can opt to buy it at a massively discounted price. Friends, I'm obsessed. This is finally the answer to wearing all the clothes all the time with none of the waste. Oh, and of course, one of my major reservations was the cleaning compounds that they use on the clothes because yes, it is dry cleaning, which normally makes me nervous and they don't say this on the website. So I reached out to them and I was like, hey, what's going on with the cleaning? What do you guys use? Because I can't promote this if it's just normal dry cleaning. And thankfully, they let me know that they do not use any detergents, fabric softeners, or chemicals that are harsh. Everything is professionally dry cleaned or laundered with detergents that are free from dyes and scents. It's all gentle and it uses low temperature cycles. So yes, we are good on that front as well. It is the coolest thing ever. And you can try it free for a month. Yes, completely free. Just go to MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com to sign up. Free clothes for a month. After that, their plans are super affordable. We're talking honestly, an entire month is less than the cost of typically what would be the cost of one dress. And I am not kidding. That's right. Unlimited clothes for less than the cost of one outfit. 
I'm just so thrilled to bring this resource to you guys. I can't wait to hear what you guys think. So again, get free unlimited clothes for a month at MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. That's MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com for all of the clothes, none of the waste. And definitely share your pictures and tag me on Instagram because I want to see all the fabulous things that you guys are wearing. That's MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. Yeah, I was reading a a review. It was effects of low sodium diet versus high sodium diet on blood pressure. Is it called renin or renin? Renin. Yeah. Renin, aldosterone, catecholamines, cholesterol, and triglyceride. It was 2017 and it looked at a ton of studies, but the biggest takeaway for me was just the massive difference between, because you're talking about how they do studies on sodium restriction diets and it doesn't have you know a huge measurable effect on blood pressure, but it seemed to be that the biggest difference was whether or not you had hypertension originally. And if you did, then it has like a much bigger effect. Although I read the whole thing and they didn't comment on this, but I thought this was so interesting because they were looking at it by race. So it was Asian, white, and black. The Asians had the smallest change when they were normal. So if they didn't have hypertension, they saw the smallest change in blood pressure when they went on a low sodium diet. But on the flip side, they had the greatest change if they had hypertension. So they were like on both ends of the spectrum. I was just wondering, like, do you think it has something to do with their metabolic health? I don't know about metabolic health, but there's definitely some adaptations there. Like in general, Asian populations tend to show much lower rates of lung cancer in conjunction with smoking. So, I mean, this is where some of that more granular genetic stuff becomes important and like maybe doing a little bit of genetic testing to to figure out, you know, some of your SNPs and polymorphisms could be could be helpful. But this is also where just doing a little bit of of N equals one self-experimentation is is super helpful. And it might I may modify this position going down the road, but right now, if somebody is hypertensive and they're like, do I need element or or electrolyte supplementation? I would say no, but I would really like to see you modified diet and exercise in a way that we improve your insulin sensitivity and we can track that via a variety of ways. I really like the the LPIR score or the lipoprotein insulin resistance score. And then let's see where you are then. Like have we resolved the the hypertension at that that point? And you know, this gets out in the weeds a little bit, but in Chinese medicine there's this recognition that the lungs and the kidneys are really tightly related. And you're talking about like renin and angiotensin and whatnot, some of these hormones are produced in the kidneys, but make their way to the lungs to be activated. And there's some, this may be some of the benefit of like mindfulness and breath work is that it may modify the way that these blood pressure regulating hormones actually, you know, regulate our, our electrolyte status. There's not a ton of research on it, but mechanistically it makes a lot of sense, but this is where understanding our genetic and epigenetic situation is really valuable, but it it's also doesn't mean that our genes are our destiny. Like we can get in and do some tinkering and modifying, but it also makes the case that although someone like me, I really benefit from some aggressive sodium and electrolyte supplementation, somebody else may not need that stuff because just genetically their body is wired to hold on to sodium more effectively. And they may be even when when eating a very you know healthy glycemic load for them, they may be at that that borderline of the hypertensive state, and so they would really benefit from some zone two cardio, some sauna work, so that they're getting that that low level uh, cardiovascular effect and really tuning up their 
there's sweat glands for excreting sodium and whatnot. So there's a lot of different ways to, to tackle that so that people can customize it to meet their individual needs. I don't know why I'm just, I'm just so haunted by it. I guess it's because like you would think with the Asian population, since they see the smallest change on reducing their sodium, that if they are hypertensive, that they would still see out of the three races, out of black, Asian, and white, that they would also see the smallest change, even if they're hypertensive. But the fact that they see the greatest, why? Like, is it is it that they normally have something, like you were talking about with the Asian diet and like Japan and having a higher salt intake, like they're genetically protected against it. But then if there's, for some reason, if they um, have hypertension, like, is there some like one thing that is off that would explain it? I don't know. <laughs> I'm getting in the weeds now with it. I, I suspect that this is, is just, no, it's a really, really good question. And I, I do not have, I don't even have a great speculative answer on that other than we do see some, some ethnic driven differences in different disease potentialities and whatnot, like uh, within the medical risk assessment program that I've been a part of in Reno, where we found 40 police and firefighters at high risk for type 2 diabetes. And we used this LPIR score as some of our, our advanced testing. We modified their diet and lifestyle as best we could, like kind of a lowish carb paleo type diet, got their sleep as dialed in as was possible given the demands of their work. And we had really dramatic changes in their metabolic health. The program ended up saving the city of Reno. It was estimated to be $22 million prorated over 10 years. It was like a 33 to one return on investment. But within that, that population, we modify, like if someone is African-American, we modify the cut points more aggressively for what we want to see, both with glycemic control and with blood pressure, because within African-Americans at, at, at the same some borderline high blood pressure, you see more kidney damage and you see a higher likelihood of vascular events in African-Americans than you do in, in Caucasians and Asians. And this is all like super controversial stuff these days. Like you're talking about trying to save people's lives and now people on the interwebs have, have gone so crazy that you can barely even talk about this stuff. But it, it's, it, you can have two people, different ethnic backgrounds, same height, same weight, same blood pressure, borderline high. And one of those people is at a higher cardiovascular disease risk and a higher kidney disease risk because of their genetic predispositions. Now, somewhere in that evolutionary story, those folks that are at higher risk for that have an advantage somewhere. Like there's some, re like th this is where biology is all about trade-offs. If you're super fast twitch, you may make a great basketball player or sprinter, but you're going to be a, a terrible marathoner or triathlete. And, and so, you know, it, it's not that there's anything wrong with any of these people. This is just the genetic bag of, uh, you know, deck of cards that they were dealt. And we have to better understand what's going on there. But we purposefully modify the cut points more aggressively, because if we don't, we know based off of like Mesa data, women's health uh, uh, study, the nurses health study and whatnot, that African-Americans are at higher risk for different complications at metabolic cut points that are more benign in Caucasians or Asians. Speaking to that, just to paint a picture from this study with the sodium change, and I'm using, I'm using the word black because that's what they call it in the study. 
white people who did not have hypertension, who went on low sodium diets, saw a reduction of 1.09 millimeters per mercury. Is that the way you would phrase it? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you could just call it one point. Yeah. White people with hypertension was 5.51, but then black people who did not have hypertension was 4.02. So almost the same as white people with hypertension. And then black people with hypertension was 6.64. And then that's where the Asians were like on the two different sides. So without hypertension, it was 0.72. But then with hypertension, it was 7.75. So the intuition surrounding all of this, you were talking about how there is an evolutionary advantage to things, even if they seem like they they might manifest as a health condition or a bad thing, but you know, somewhere along the line, there was <laughs> an evolutionary reason for it. So when it comes to electrolyte intake and intuition, how intuitive are our bodies for getting adequate amounts of electrolytes? Like with Element, for example, should people just take a pack and if it tastes super salty, does that mean something? <laughs> like, like how do people know how many electrolytes they need? Sure. That's a really good question. And honestly, it's one of the most difficult things to answer. People say, how much do I need? And it's like, I really don't know. Are you a large male, small female? We, we spent two years living in Texas where on Christmas day, it was 90 degrees and like 90% humidity. <laughs> now we live in Montana, you know? And so all of those things change the, the, the parameters a lot, even within very mainstream guidelines, the American Council of Sports Medicine, athletes that are training in hot, humid environments or at altitude and at high work output, they put the, the need at at least seven to 10 grams of sodium per day. So, and so this is super mainstream, orthodox, you know, medical circles. And they recommend for an athlete that, you, you know, we start having the conversation at at least seven to 10 grams of sodium per day. We've done work with like professional hockey teams and some other folks that really track the electrolyte loss for these, these folks during a game or a session. And some of these big guys that are what we call super sweaters, like they, the, the sweat just pours off of them and they tend to have a much saltier sweat. They will lose 10 grams of sodium in an hour, hour and a half game or practice. And if they don't replace that, they are a disaster. Like they don't recover. They don't sleep. So there's just a massive spectrum on this stuff. And, and, you know, your question is, is really good. Like what's kind of the intuitive or qualitative, you know, thing that we could use on this. And, and one of the, the things to look at is just being aware of the signs and symptoms of low electrolyte status, hyponatremia and lethargy, fatigue, brain fog are all kind of early stage pieces. When we start getting cramping, like you, you lay down at night and you go to stretch your toes out and your calf cramps, like you're really far down the, 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 the track of, of low sodium and low electrolytes. Like you, you've gone really far on that. So cramping is an indication that we are really sodium and electrolyte deficient. Some of these other things like lethargy, brain fog, high heart rate when we go to lay down to go to bed, low HRV score, these are all very consistent with that. And we have noticed this is very unscientific. There's absolutely no randomized control trials to support this. But what we've noticed is that if folks mix something like Element and they put it in, say, like 32 ounces of water, so not super concentrated, but it's not super dilute, what we find is that when people are in need of additional sodium, all that they taste is sweet. 
And then when they hit a point where they're kind of topped off on sodium, they start tasting the salt and it really, they're kind of like, I don't know that I really want anymore. So it takes a little bit of paying attention to some of those subjective symptoms like the lethargy, brain fog, fatigue, cramping, and then paying very, you know, pretty, pretty close attention to how something like this tastes. Now, all that said, we do also recommend that people get it, it, as much of the, the sodium as they can from other dietary sources, things like pickles and olives and, you know, salami and stuff like that are, are really, really good sources because you get a bunch of other nutrition along with the ride. Element is fantastic. Love it when people buy it, but I'm really not envisioning that people get their, their full sodium allotment from, from Element. I'm really hoping that they get the vast majority of it from their diet based around whole minimally processed foods that some of them also come with a, a decent whack of sodium. Just looking at what I eat, I eat a massive amount of <laughs> seafood, oftentimes scallops. And with the amount that I eat, it actually says that I get, quote, the RDA for sodium because I eat so much of it. Another question I had, though, about the um, the sodium and the the intuition, does the body reach different homeostatic baselines of sodium based on what you're eating. I tend to eat very simply and that I have like the certain types of foods that I like. And I go through times where I'm eating a lot of one type of food and then a lot of another, but the consistency is there's always high protein. I play with the macros, but sometimes I go through saltier phases and with the actual food itself. And I, I feel like I, I will like hit a baseline eating that amount of salt won't make me feel like, like I ate a lot of salt. But then if I'm on a lower salt run and I eat a salty meal, I mean, I, I massively feel it, you know, and I'm like sweating the next day and excreting water. Is there like a timeline of a adjustment where the body adjusts to salt intakes? And then a follow-up question would be, would that make the argument that not minimum effective dose, but like if the body does reach some sort of baseline, is it better to be at a, a lower or a higher baseline or does it matter? Mm, man, those are great questions. Your, your questions are going to be 10 times better than my answer. The kidneys are really quite good, all, all things being equal. And we're not metabolically, you know, we're not suffering metabolic derangement and insulin resistance and whatnot. The kidneys are really good at sorting out our, our sodium intake. If we go a little little too much, they will filter it out, excrete urine, and and all is kind of good. Usually what, what you will notice with that is, is possibly an increased thirst. Ages ago in sports circles, the coaches would tell athletes and, and kids to suck on salt tablets and then just sip on water per, per you know, satiety. And this was actually a really shockingly smart recommendation, you know, because you had the sodium there that would stimulate the desire to drink water, but then you weren't diluting the sodium to such a degree that we ended up in a hyponatremic state. So the body's pretty good at regulating that side of things. And then that minimum effective dose story, I guess there's something to that, but it, it seems like, again, it, it strikes me as a pretty dynamic process. Again, I'll just use the example of, of living in Montana, like it, we are at 3,000 feet elevation, so not real high, but certainly not sea level. But typically, it's pretty dry here. But the past couple of days, we had some thunderstorms. The ground was absolutely saturated with, with water, and then the sun came out. 
and it was like 94% humidity and 85 degrees. Like it felt like Costa Rica or Texas or something like that. And I noticed that my, my baseline desire for electrolytes was much higher, like much, much higher because I was just sweating a lot. Hot weather is so infrequent in Montana that we don't even have an air conditioner like you you just open your doors and windows in the morning, the house gets cool, you button it up and, and then it carries you through the whole day. Whereas like it was hot outside, it was hot inside. I was sweaty and uncomfortable all day. And I noticed that, that my electrolyte intake was much higher than what it, it was otherwise, just like my desire for it. So I, man, it, it, it's a good question, but I, I think that that is just a really dynamic, changeable process, depending on what you're situation is, you know, like being on an airplane, you would make the case that you would probably want to hydrate like crazy because the air is super dry and, and dry air tends to ironically lead to dehydration, which is a loss of the water. And, and we, we tend to see an uptick in sodium excretion, but what do you not want to do when you're on an airplane? run back and forth to the bathroom like 30 times during the flight. So, so you, you know, there's a, you know, just the, the dynamics of life, I, I think are going to be huge drivers on that. So it, it you know, I, I probably did a terrible job answering that, but I, I think it's just a very dynamic process. It's a very nebulous concept. It's probably like so many things I talk about it. It really is just an individual, you know, there's not like one answer. And like you said, it's dynamic and changing. Just to clarify, the level of using electrolytes for hydration, is that also on a spectrum? Like, do electrolytes support hydration up to a certain point, but then if you have too much, would it support dehydration? A solution could be hypertonic, where it has more things dissolved in it than what is dissolved in our body. And like, if you drink a hypertonic solution, you can get really bad gut ache and, and possibly even diarrhea from that because it will actually pull fluid out of the body to dilute it in the, in the intestines. And so that would be a problem. There's isotonic where it is the same amount of dissolved solutes in that, that, that water. And that's kind of like the nice sweet spot. And when people put element in about 30 to 32 ounces of water. It's about a hypotonic solution, slightly on the hypotonic side. And then the hypotonic is where you, and this is kind of where people end up with Gatorade and, and most of the, the electrolyte options that are available. They have electrolyte in them, but they are such small amounts relative to the fluid being consumed that it really doesn't help you. You still ultimately end up in that hyponatremic state because although we don't want to overly lose body water, which would be dehydration. You also, it, it's arguably much more dangerous to end up in a hyponatremic state, that sodium-potassium imbalance, than it is dehydration. When you look at the medical literature, unless somebody is like trapped in a, a mine cave-in or they get lost in the desert or something like that, nobody ever dies from dehydration. Like humans will find a way to get some fluid in themselves, but people routinely will overconsume water. Again, you know, like these hazing rituals with fraternities and sororities, military training, marathon triathlon, where people will drink a set amount of water every, you know, every two miles or whatever. And it, it's absent electrolytes and they can end up in a, a hyponatremic state and be hospitalized or potentially even die. 
I'm so glad you touched on that because I was actually wondering that if, and it's a really naive question, but I was wondering if like element had to be dissolved in water or could you just add it to food, for example? The balance is important, but you know, some people have been using, I mean, it, it wouldn't in my mind be much different than using salt on like a steak or like some folks were putting the mango chili on watermelon slices and it, it's like other world. It's so good. So, I mean, it, it can also just be a seasoning too. Okay. Are you thinking of making any like non-drink one seasonings? We haven't really thought of that too much. We, we've just been spinning up recipes with the, the ones that we have and like, oh yeah, you could use it with this or use it with that. But we haven't really, haven't really thought about like, like a, uh, a seasoning line or, or around that. No, no. Well, listeners get really excited because I'm sure they want to get their hands on some element. And you mentioned this already, but you have the most incredible, amazing offer, which is listeners can get element, a sampler pack completely free. That's how you know that it's a good product that people keep buying if you can um, afford to <laughs> give it away for free. It's like a drug dealer. So long as you get the first one's free and then people are hooked. So yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> then no more. So you can go to drinklmnt.com forward slash Melanie Avalon. And there you will get your free sampler pack. So thank you so much for that. And then you've made it clear that you pay a small price for shipping, but if you don't like it or don't find it beneficial, they will even reimburse you for the shipping, which is crazy. Do you have any exciting new flavors down the pipeline? You probably can't share but you guys have so many flavors that blows my mind. <laughs> we, we had grapefruit that came out for the summer and it was a seasonal flavor and it, it sold out in like three weeks. We were stunned by that. And it apparently is our most popular flavor. And we thought it was only going to be a, a seasonal. So we're, we're figuring out what we're going to do with that. And we will have a really fun holiday slash fall flavor that's going to be a ton of fun. And that's, that's all I'll say on that. Yeah. Can I make a flavor request? Absolutely. <laughs> this doesn't even apply to drinks, so I'm, you're not going to make this, but birthday cake. <laughs> I would be so excited. I love everything birthday cake. So I don't know if you're into Star Wars. My kids are into Star Wars, but there's this blue milk. It's kind of this feature of Star Wars. And we were kicking around the idea for like May the 4th that we would... So we don't add any colorings to any of this stuff, but we were thinking about doing a May the 4th blue colored electrolyte just so that people could have their, their you know, May the 4th uh, Star Wars electrolyte deal. But that too would be a limited run and would use like blueberry extract as the, the color. So yeah, it's a possibility. We'll see. We'll see. I'm a huge Star Wars, Star Trek girl. So that'd be so exciting. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Rob. This has been absolutely amazing. I'm just, like I said, forever in awe and grateful for everything that you do. I listen to every single episode of your podcast every single week. So having this conversation now is just really, really surreal. The last question I ask every single guest on the show, and it's just because I realize more and more each day how important mindset is. You might remember it from last time, but what is something that you're grateful for? Oh, it's probably the same answer, but uh, definitely my family. Like that's, that's right up there. And uh, my health also. I, I've learned recently that two, two classmates, you know, I'm, I'll be 50 in January, but I had one classmate, mother of four grandkids, uh, et cetera, et cetera. She died from COVID. And then another really dear friend, the person that I actually walked with at graduation in high school, 
had a massive stroke and, and died recently. So can't, can't say enough gratitude or have enough gratitude for just being healthy and having some people foolish enough to love me. So that, that's what I'm grateful for. Well, thank you so much. Like I said, any other links you'd like to put out there or anything we didn't touch on or how can people best follow your work? All of that. RobWolf.com is where most things live. They can find the Healthy Rebellion, Healthy Rebellion podcast, and then over at DrinkElement.com. Like we generate a massive amount of material, like our guides to intermittent fasting. And we talk about a lot of these, you know, pluses and minuses about how to do it, how to keto fuel different athletic activities, but we have a massive amount of material over drinkelement.com. Perfect. Well, I will put links to all of that in the show notes. Thank you so much. This was absolutely amazing. Enjoy the rest of your day and hopefully you can come on again in the future. Anytime you want me on, I will do it. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What Win Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.